I'm really glad to be back with you all. I love Steve Hogg. Uh, he is one of the best organized, uh, Christ-loving, Christ-honoring pastors that I've ever had the privilege of knowing, and we've been in contact with each other for 30-plus years, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. My wife and I really enjoyed being here last week and are glad we have a chance to be here one more time in a couple more weeks. So thank you for being here, and thank you for being a great church. Uh, I'm grateful to God for what he's doing through you. Well, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture. It's Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10 today. Paul ends most of his letters with what I would call peanut-sized truths. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is probably the most obvious, but most of his letters end with brief personal greetings and brief personal commands. Galatians is no exception. And in this chapter, he gives us three peanut-sized truths. In these first ten verses, they are restore sinners gently, help others with their unreasonable burdens, but bear all your own normal burdens. And the third, you reap what you sow. I want you to see a picture of an elephant maintaining his size. Elephants eat peanuts. It's the biggest land animal that we have in our world today. And they will eat a peanut. God's Word has got a number of these short commands, and they are very important. What happens to most Christians is they don't take any of God's Word seriously, or to a lot of Christians, they don't take any of God's Word seriously unless they can see a direct benefit to themselves. But a lot of people who begin to get serious about Christ make the mistake of believing that following the Lord is more like this animal I'd like to show you a picture of. This is an anaconda who has eaten something extremely large. Now, you'll be grateful to know this is a video on YouTube, uh, and apparently this snake actually eats the animal. I cannot imagine how much hate mail I would have gotten if I had put the video of the snake eating a live animal. But this is what it looks like after it gets through. Snakes like an anaconda will eat about every six weeks, and when they eat, they don't eat peanuts. They eat gigantic things. Well, I would rather be an elephant who can move around and do things every day than this big immobilized snake who has tried to eat so much that it can't move. And for a lot of us, we get so interested in the big doctrines, and we don't pay enough attention to the peanuts. And the truth is, a lot of what God expects of us is expressed in very small ways, but it has very big results. So let's look at these three peanut-sized truths with amazing eternal results to offer. The first one is restore gently. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Galatians. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Brethren, this is not just addressed to male Christians. This is addressed to every person who is a believer. There is no one who because of their spiritual gift or their experience or anything else who is excused from this. So if you can fog a mirror and you have faith in Jesus Christ, no matter how new or mature it is, no matter how big or how little your faith is, you are responsible for this. What is it you're responsible for? If you catch anyone in any trespass and are spiritual at all, you are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. The word if is interesting. There, there, this, is a, uh, this is called a Greek second-class conditional sentence. They had two uses of the word if. The first was uh, it, it assumed the fact in question. Uh, it, it, that, it, that it was iffy. Uh, and that is, for example, if it rains this afternoon. No one can be sure whether it's going to rain this afternoon. Everybody makes jokes about the weatherman who gets 100% pay for being 40% right. Well, if you said, if it rains this afternoon, we all know it may and it may not. But uh, uh, if you say, uh, if a thirsty man needs water, you are assuming that condition. In this case, that's the kind of assumption. It really could be translated, brethren, since men are caught in many different trespasses. So it assumes that every human being is going to get caught in a trespass from time to time. Little children hit their little brothers or their little sisters. Bigger children disobey their parents and are inconsiderate. Teenagers, do I need to go into it? Young adults go their own way and get themselves in serious trouble. Young married people don't get along with each other the way they intended to the day they were married. Everyone gets caught in trespasses because God's Word has a command about every single one of those problems. Little children are commanded to obey their parents, all of whom would tell them, don't hit your little brother or your little sister. So everyone gets caught in a trespass. So he says, brethren, if you see someone who gets caught in a trespass, who gets caught in a sin, then... You who are spiritual, and, and by the way, in any trespass, a big trespass, adultery, DUI, a crime that sends them to jail, a smaller, less irritating trespass, uh, someone who speaks inconsiderately, someone who drives uncarefully, when you see someone like that, your responsibility is not to think, well, I'm going to straighten them out and keep them from ever doing anything like that again. That's dangerous. That's bad. That's sinful. They shouldn't do that. That's embarrassing to the kingdom. No, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is restoration. 
Our responsibility is to bring them back in such a way that they are not shamed. To bring them back in such a way that when they come back, they feel fully a part of the body and of the kingdom of God again. So if you, any of you, catch anyone, anyone else in a trespass, if you have any spirituality about them, your responsibility is restoration. And it is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. It is to be done with the idea that you always have an opportunity to say something tough and hard but you never have a chance to take it back. So start gently. It's amazing that God does this. You ever pay close attention to the temptations of Jonah? Jonah begins with God saying to him, I want you to go down to Nineveh and preach to this wicked city because if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. Well, that's what Jonah wanted God to do to the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. They hated the Jews. So the Jews hated them back. So when God says, I want you to go to the most despicable people you can think of, and I want you to preach so that they can repent and be forgiven and not be in danger, Jonah said, I don't want to do that. I want them to die. So Jonah, it says, went to Tarshish, which is Spain, away from the presence of the Lord. He heads down the Mediterranean Sea in the opposite direction from Nineveh. And the first thing that God does is withdraw His presence from him. So the sweet, helpful presence of God is not with Jonah, and he knows it. The next thing that God does is bring a storm against the boat. Nothing directly happens to Jonah, but Jonah is affected by the storm. And he worries about the boat. The sailors worry about the boat. Jonah says, it's me. And so the sailors start throwing all of the baggage overboard and all of the stuff that they have in the hold of the ship. Jonah says, don't do that. Throw me over. They don't want to do that. He's a human passenger. But he throws him into the ocean. So now Jonah's life is in danger. But Jonah does not repent. So God escalates what he does. And God is saying, if I am that gentle with a man who utterly refuses to do something that I have very clearly told him to do, why should you start out harshly? Why should you assume you know better than that? Why instead don't you assume he is a sinner like Jonah, he is a sinner by nature and by choice like me, and I should not be shocked when he does something that is sinful, when he does something that is a trespass, in other words, it steps over a boundary that God has set and is in a territory where you don't belong. Now, why is it that we don't respond gently? Well, I'm not dead sure that I can give you a one or two sentence answer to that, but I can tell you that there are things in my life that bother me more than they should. I was complaining about it one day at home, and Patty said, Dick, my wife Patty, she said, he said, she said, Dick, I read something the other day that applies to what you're talking about. She said, there is a difference between a lump in your oatmeal, a lump in your throat, and a lump in your breast. This is a lump in your oatmeal, but you think it's a lump in your breast, and it isn't. 
I, there was a woman that was a member of my church who one day I preached about the unforgivable sin. And she came up to me, and I'd said the unforgivable sin, the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I showed you where the I showed up where the Bible said that. And she came up to me after the service and said, I know what the unforgivable sin is. And I thought, well, I hope so. I just spent 30 minutes pounding on it. And uh, she said, it's adultery. And I said, no. And she said, yes, it is. It is adultery. And I thought, there's something going on here. And I don't need to argue with her about theology when I don't think that's her problem. So I listened to her and I said, well, I'd love to talk with you more about this sometime. And uh, she walked away feeling that she had restored a sinner to the Lord's ways, showing me what was... Well, it turned out that her husband was committing adultery. And my guess is she was suspicious of it. She felt it but she couldn't prove it yet. And about six months later, she was able to. And my guess is what she was saying was, this is the most awful sin there is because right now this is the sin that's breaking my heart. Well, psychologically, I get that. Uh, I, I've known people who, can find, uh, who, who grew up in homes with parents who they would come home from school and their mother or their father would be drunk and passed out on the floor of their living room, and you can understand how they would think that is the worst thing there is. But Paul says you need to understand, God says through Paul, you need to understand that what seems worse to you is not something that excuses you from being harsh. Your responsibility is to believe God that there is only one unforgivable sin, God has not ranked sin, that which deserves a harsh response and that which deserves a gentle response. All trespasses, all sin deserve gentleness, especially at the beginning of the restoration process. Why Jesus said, if you see someone sinning, go to them yourself. And if they respond, then you have restored a sinner to his ways. If he doesn't respond, take back two or three. So the idea is you avoid as much embarrassment as you can. It's a different kind of day, isn't it, today? Everything is an atomic sin. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was refused, uh, was refused service at a restaurant in the Washington, D.C. area because she serves an administration that the waiters in the restaurant didn't like. And uh, so she was, and, and there is this kind of thing going across, all across our culture, that people respond not with gentleness. I'm going to wait on you, but I'd like for you to know how I feel about something. But with great harshness. And we who are spiritual, everyone can't do this, but we who are spiritual are supposed to rely on the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. But look at the other reason that is given in this verse. Each looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. Tempted to what? To self-righteousness? To not depending upon the grace of God? To believing that you are qualified to be a moral scourge? Some people never get over the thrill of being a third-grade hall monitor and being 
a volunteer and given authority by your teacher to fuss at people for skipping steps or not staying in line or talking in the hall, and some people grow up thinking that is my purpose in life, to straighten others out. Paul says here there is no one who is given the responsibility of straightening others out. Restoring them, helping them find their way back, absolutely. But doing it all the time in the recognition that I am not here as a saint to help a sinner see his ways. I am here as a fellow struggler to help a fellow struggler struggle successfully. So restore in a spirit of gentleness. Number two, bear your own normal burdens, but help others with their unusual burdens. This is a passage of Scripture that almost sounds like a contradiction because if you read it on the face of it, and, and, and this, is the, this is a problem with translation. Uh, the, the two words are best translated burden. But, but listen to verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. Listen to verse 5. Each one shall bear his own load. Well, why should you bear the load of someone that God expects to bear himself? It's referring to two two different things. Both are burdens. But the burden that is talked about in verse 2 is the kind of burden that a person who is working three jobs, a single mom or a, a single dad's working three jobs to support his family, and all of a sudden he gets cancer. That's an unusual burden. It is not a normal responsibility for a person who is doing everything that he can to support his family to now have to deal with the problem of cancer. And everyone who is spiritual ought to want to get involved in that person's life and to help them with this burden that has come on to him that is not his fault. But in verse 5, it says, each one shall bear his own load. Now there the word that is translated load or in the King James burden is one that meant the burden of a Roman soldier's pack. That every Roman soldier was expected to bear his own pack with his own food and his own water and his own change of clothes. And if a Roman soldier had looked at the guy in the line next to him and said, you know, my shoulders hurt. How about you take my pack too? The soldier next to him would say, bear your own load. And all the other soldiers would be laughing at the guy who had sore shoulders and calling him a wimp for who knows how long. Because everybody was expected to bear their own burdens in the Roman legions. And we are expected to do the same thing in the kingdom of God. Uh, There was a famous admiral. Uh, I believe he was an admiral, who gave a talk at the University of Texas, and it has become a major best-selling book. It's called Make Your Bed. Uh, This man gave a talk to the graduates of the University of Texas and became the president of the university as a result of this talk. Uh, and, And he said to them, life is made up basically of peanuts, of small things. So you get up in the morning on time, you make your bed, You get dressed, you don't waste time watching television, you get to work early, you do a better job than is expected. And he was talking about how a life of success is made up of lots of little successes, one right after the other. You don't just aim for the big time, you work for the big time, one 
step at a time. And so Paul is saying that you are to bear your own burdens. It's your responsible responsibility to make your own bed or to earn enough money to pay somebody to do it for you. It's your responsibility to get a job, to go to work, to save your money, to spend less than you make, uh, to watch the way you spend your money and to not be foolish, to be a saver, to be a tither. And he says each one is if each one is to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is love one another. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That is, if you think that you are too important to have to help someone who has got a major unexpected problem, then you deceive yourself. And verse 4, let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. In other words, as he has succeeded at following Christ, he rejoices in the grace of God and in the work of God in his life. This doesn't mean he takes pride in believing he's done it himself. He gives God the glory and God the credit for it. And so therefore, he looks at people with unusual burdens and he says, there but for the grace of God go I. Let me roll up my sleeves. Let me dig in my wallet. Let me look at my calendar and find the time and the money and the determination to help this person. And yet, for my normal responsibilities, I will not look to others to come in and make my life a continual vacation. I understand that I am put... By the way, do you know the one command or expectation of God that was the same before and after the fall of man? It is not worship. They were not told to worship in the Garden of Eden. It is not love. They were not told to love before the Garden of Eden. It is to work. All of us are responsible to do the work of life day by day, thing by thing, and to bear our own responsibilities. And finally, you reap what you sow. In verses 6 through 10, Paul says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. This may be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. That's a joke. You're supposed to give the teacher of the word money. That's what this says. So that's why it's my favorite verse. Verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Mocking God is to place is to replace my responsibility with grace. It is to say that I am not responsible for my life. God is responsible for my life. But it says, God says, you will reap what you do sow most of the time you will not reap what you do not sow. There are times when God, by His grace, gives you something that you don't have the sense to work for. But the major way life works is that you reap what you sow. I have watched preachers throughout my ministry 
uh, believe that there is one thing that you can do, and laymen do this too, there's one thing that you can do that will make everything the kingdom of God happen. If we just pray, God will bless everything we do. If we just evangelize, God will bless everything we do. If we just do missions, God will bless everything we do. If we just worship, and all of you have seen people who are like this, and I want you to know, there is no such thing as one-button theology. There is no one thing that you believe and do that pleases God. There are a lot of things that God has called us to do, just as there are a lot of things that make being a good husband or a good wife or a good child or a good parent. And we need to work at doing all of them. We'll always be better at some things than others. But when a person says, if we just pray, what they're telling you is, I really like to pray so much that I wish that were the only thing I had to do for God. But the real test of the Christian life and the real test of life generally is, are you willing to do the things that God tells you to do that you don't prefer to do or are you only willing to do the things that you really like to do? Most pastors love to preach. It's the one time during the week when you get to say what you think and nobody gets to argue with you until afterwards. But if all you do is preach, I don't care how you justify it, just let the Word do the work or something like that, we are also responsibility for, responsible for loving, for leading, for caring, for a lot of other things. And so it isn't just one thing that you do to be good at life. You reap what you sow. Do you sow a well-balanced crop, or do you have a tendency to only want to sow those things that you like to do? In verse 8, he says, remember this. He who sows to his own flesh from the flesh shall reap corruption. What did Jesus say in John 3, 6? In speaking to Nicodemus, he said, Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. So if you go to church on Sunday morning and spend the rest of your life thinking about the rest of your week, thinking about yourself, looking out for yourself, not caring about others, not restoring in a spirit of gentleness, but letting everybody just take care of himself. If, if that's how you spend your week, you are sowing the flesh and you will reap what you sow. But if you sow from the spirit, if you restore people in a spirit of gentleness, if you have a concern for your children that says, I too was a child, I too disobeyed, by God's grace, I turned out all right. I'm going to trust God with my child, and I'm going to work at restoring them, but I'm going to start out gently. I'm not going to start out with the biggest threat or the greatest fuss or with losing my temper. I'm going to do it in the Spirit of God. I will not sow with my children in the flesh. I don't want to reap corruption. I want to sow in the Spirit of God and reap eternal life, the benefits of eternal life. Verse 9, let us not lose heart. 
That's what happens to most people who are called to a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness doesn't appear to pay off. We could name a lot of people who are in the news today who do not lead their business or their political group in a gentle way at all. And honestly, to begin with, it looks like they're winning, doesn't it? Because a lot of times, I mean, I learned this, I grew up in a fighting family. And in my family, I learned there can be real immediate benefits in fighting and winning. But over the long haul, when you're a fighter rather than a lover, you wind up instead of correcting people or even getting what you really want or need, you wind up separating yourself from people and distancing them from you. And so when he says that you must not lose heart in doing good because in due time you will reap if we do not grow weary, Notice he says it twice. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. This year, for the first time since about 1975, I have a garden. Uh, we, we bought, I can't believe that I bought the biggest yard I've ever owned for my retirement, but I did. And uh, back in the backyard, I've planted a, a pretty good-sized garden. And uh, last year, well, we... we moved up to Greenville right after it was the appropriate time to plant a garden, and the soil in my garden area was just terrible. It was very acidic, and all the plants grew up scrawny and yellow, and no matter how much fertilizer I put on them, it didn't do well because plants don't absorb fertilizer well in acidic soil. And so I went and got a soil test and was told what I needed to do, and so I went and bought, I found a lady that sells uh, horse manure. And uh, it's been sitting out in the weather for three years, so it's very well mulched, and it's beautiful uh, as, a, as a soil builder. And I bought 3,000 pounds of it, and I spread it on my garden, and I burned up a rototiller digging it in. And the first time through that soil, it was just torture. And the second time, it was a little easier, and the third time, it was pretty easy. And this year, when I planted my crop, up came beautiful plants. But not only did beautiful plants come up, beautiful weeds came up. So every day I'm out there pulling weeds. I have a little Roundup bottle and I... Because my asparagus, they said, you've got to keep the weeds out of the asparagus. And so I'm out there every day working at it. And this last week we began eating the very first vegetables. Well, I've been working at it for a year. And, and he's saying, if you expect to say something kind and get kindness back to you that week, you're engaging in magical thinking. It doesn't work that way. You keep sowing kindness, bearing one another's unreasonable burdens, restoring in a spirit of gentleness, caring for and loving your children and your spouse, not expecting them to be every... By the way, have you ever considered when you feel that you didn't get the best spouse in the world, have you ever considered that there is no perfect person on the face of the earth that God is mad enough with to stick with you? I have to think that. 
Patty and I have grown together. We both had a lot of rough edges when we got married. I didn't really think so for me. I didn't really think so for her. But as you get married, you realize, as you live in marriage, you realize things about each other that you probably weren't honest enough with yourself to recognize at the beginning. And so as you, uh, as you grow in your marriage, as you live in your marriage, you realize, I, in due time, we've been married now for 48 years, and wow, the benefits that we are reaping. God blesses the consistent sower in the Spirit of God. You have an opportunity this morning to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. That is where the sowing begins, and the reaping is eternal. You are given the gifts of God for the rest of this life and for eternity. You receive the rewards that come from him who is obedient. So as God works in your heart this morning, if he has been working in your heart and you've said, I'd like to learn to do that. I would like to follow the Lord in my life. You come this morning and give your heart to Jesus Christ. As others are singing, God will be working, and you come, and there will be ministers here at the front who will help you to come to faith in Christ and to begin following Him. Would you slip out from wherever you are as God works in your heart and come? Let's stand for the invitation.